active, pleasing. So you can, you can describe an act as good, but it's also uh, you can describe a, a woman as good and as attractive. Um, and so in other words, right, it's like the goal is as we figure out the life of faith and keeping God's commandments as, as a response of gratitude to Jesus, um, there's going to be a magnetic quality to our lives. Uh, our neighbor is going to get a glimpse of Jesus in us as we keep God's commandments. And so with that brief introduction, let's talk about the sixth commandment. And let's read it here. I'm going to read uh, verse 6 and 17, and then I'm going to read from the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. This is God's word. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. And then in Matthew, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to a judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and you there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. And this is the word of our God. He has spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, your grace has given us more than we can imagine in Christ, for we were destined for death, and you gave us life. And so I pray as we meditate on this commandment today um, that your kindness to us would form us into a people that love our neighbors with this aggression, aggressive, compassionate um, willingness to forgive and defend the weak. Help us celebrate life because of the ways you love us. And for that to happen, we need your spirit to work in our hearts. And so come and, come and help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, from the, the very first page of the Bible, you cannot escape the reality that God is inescapably life-giving, <laughs> right? That we, we read it this morning in Sunday school with the teenagers, that everything that happens in Genesis 1 and 2 is so that all of life can flourish, right? Then you get to chapter 2, you have the portrait of God breathing divine life into Adam and Eve's nostrils so that they, they can live. Um, and then we've been talking about Israel a lot, right? God rescued Israel from the tyranny of infanticide, right? babies being slaughtered, as well as just slavery to death and misery in Egypt. He is for life. And at the end of the Bible, right, Revelation makes clear that God has this unrelenting, unchanging, eternal decree that human life will flourish because there will be no more pain, uh, no more tears, no more sorrow. Death will be swallowed up. It's an invasive enemy. It will not always be so. And so 
When we come to the sixth commandment, it should be no surprise then that if God is that much for life, that he would say, do not murder. <laughs> do, not, do not put yourself in the place of God and take the life of another human being. Right? Our neighbors, is the, the way we've been talking about it, right? The Ten Commandments are a bill of rights for our neighbors and for God. That, that your neighbor has a right to breathe, <laughs> to continue living. And we're to defend that. Right? And so, it's essentially what the, the Sixth Commandment is, is showing us, and I'm, I know I'm reading in the whole story, is that, that Christians are to have a womb-to-tomb life ethic Right, that, that we're to be pro-life in, in all of the, those expressions. So, right, so the word for murder in the Bible, specifically here in the commandments, it's, it's aiming right at for what we, this is what TV shows are made off of, right? Intentional homicide. Planned and, un, but it also includes unplanned. Right? Things like manslaughter. Um, right, your ox escapes and gores your neighbor. Right? You're guilty of not restraining your ox but it's not something you plotted. Right? Or maybe your axe handle flies off and, and hits someone in the head. Right? These are specific cases in the Bible. Um, it's talking about murder. All right? But some people, part of it I think is due to the, the King James, tr- translated this, do not kill. Um, as in, it's never permitted in any circumstance to ever take a life. And that's what our pacifist Christian friends would say. But the word in Hebrew, used here in Deuteronomy 5 in the Ten Commandments, is only used in those intentional homicide contexts. It's not killing in general. There's a whole different word for that. And so I'm being a little bit technical here, but it's, it's really trying to show that um, right, this blanket command, do not murder, it doesn't give specifics. It doesn't say when and where or why. Just says, don't do it. It's, it's laying out this case that you have to have a really ironclad, clear, good moral reason in this world to ever take another human life. Right? There's, there's very few circumstances where God says this is okay. Right? Maybe just war, right? soldiers defending the weak and the innocent. Um, and then there's an argument for the death penalty when it's done justly, which in our unjust world is really hard to actually pull off. <laughs> he said, we're, we're getting into six commandment issues. We could go on a lot of rabbit trails. So if you want to have those conversations, I'd be happy to do that. But So we're talking about murder, right? And I know when I look out in the congregation, I'm, I don't see a bunch of murderers, <laughs> which is good news for you. Um, and I also know that Personally, and just by, from in conversation with people, most of us don't feel like the sixth commandment is something I'm breaking on the regular. Right? It's not, it's not a nagging guilt, per se. And that's why I think we need the wisdom of Father Brown to help us jump into this. He's, Father Brown is a, a character by G.K. Chesterton. He was a priest who solves murders. And after a series of public successes... Solving these horrific crimes, he was asked, uh, Father Brown, what's your secret? How do, you, how do you get it? How do you figure this stuff out? And he paused, and he said, you see, it was I who killed all those people. Of course, the people in the room were like, wait, what? <laughs> he 
He said, you see, I had murdered them all myself, explained Father Brown. Of course I knew how it was done. Of course, at that point, the people are starting to stand up in horror, freaking out. And he said, Father Brown goes on and said, I planned out each of the crimes very carefully. I had thought out exactly how a thing like that could be done and in what state of mind would have, a man would have to be in to really do it. And then when I was quite sure that I felt exactly like the murderer myself, then I knew exactly who he was. <laughs> you hear what he's saying? This is a priest. He's, the priest is saying the way I solve murders is by relating and identifying and seeing within myself the capability to be a murderer. Do you believe that about yourself? Right. Here's another voice, non-Christian voice. This is from the New York Times in an article called In Defense of Original Sin. And this non-Christian philosopher says, you know, we're just mystified by somebody who could actually take another human life. But he says, you know, if we actually take a deep look inside ourselves at our own violent fantasies, the ways we hate the world, those moments of imagine, imagination where we annihilate people we fancy to be our enemies, or maybe those feelings when we just feel misunderstood and persecuted. You know, if you really were witheringly honest, maybe you'd see a school shooter, a bully, or abuser in yourself, or the sort that helps create people like that. Whew. Brutally honest, right? It's not that different than what Jesus said. That you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother, whoever says you fools, whoever th throws insults, liable to the judgment of hell. Right. So Jesus' argument, which this then invades every human life, because everybody gets angry, and unjustly so. His argument is, is the moment you use your words, the moment you get angry at the audacity of someone else to cross your holy will, <laughs> we're part of humanity who have left a trail of violence with our words, according to Jesus. And murder comes from the seed of anger. Murder is just anger unrestrained. And so, as we jump into this, right, my goal isn't to beat us up, per se, but to show us what, what kind of life the Sixth Commandment is after to where it's even legislating our emotions, our anger, to, which is going way back from the fruit, what everyone can see, all the way back down to this is the depths of my heart and the ugliness that I don't like to tell other people about. Right? Because... If we really understand the Sixth Commandment, not only will it call us to deeper faith in Jesus, that he loves me, and though I'm that bad, it's going to lead us to repentance, to say, okay, what would a life look like where I am for life the way Jesus is for life? It's going to be aggress aggressively compassionate, I think. Because if the Sixth Commandment forbids the unjust taking of life, its opposite is it's commanding that we protect and preserve every aspect of life. And so, how do we get there? Well, first, we have to see the significance of every human life. 
All right, this is, this is the behind the scenes of the sixth commandment in Genesis. You know, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 9? Um, there's Bibles under the, the chairs if you don't have one. Genesis 9, 6, after the flood. It's one of those things when you read later in the Bible, it just assumes you remember what came before. <laughs> and that's not, not true of all of us. That's hard to remember. So let's go back and reread this. All right, after the flood, after God's justice washed over the earth, and if you can remember it, this is important, the reason the flood happened is because the whole earth was filled with violence, meaning everybody was committing murder. It was a terrifying place to live. The earth was, was plagued with this violence. It was corrupted. Um, and so after that, after the flood, after God's justice, Noah is told to fill the earth with life again. And then in verse 6, we have this statement, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because, or for, God made man in his own image. And so here's, here's the argument. Why murder is bad, apart from what everyone believes about protecting life, right? the Christian reason. Every human being was created by God, and, has, and because they're all made in the image of God, they have an inherent right to life. Right? Pastor Tim Keller would say the purpose of this passage is to get everyone in the room to feel the weight of your neighbor's glory. Feel the weight, the significance, the value that God has invested in every person. Right? I mean, if you have that view that every, every life matters, um, that, that's a Christian view that comes straight from Genesis. Right? Saying there's no sliding scale, whether you're rich or poor. Right? And it doesn't take too much imagination in any corner of the world where the rich can commit all kinds of horrible atrocities, pay off the right people, and get away with murder. Right? This is saying, no, everyone needs to honor everyone. <laughs> doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, what race you are, whether you're an emperor or a peasant, whether you have all the power in the world or you have no power in the world, everyone is made in the image of God and therefore have a right to life. Right? That's why Martin Luther King Jr., and his, he, it was a Christian movement to, to love your neighbor. When he says every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because everyone is made in the image of God. Right? And so just think about the logic of what, what is saying here, right? In the logic of the Bible, if you're God's image bearer, you're God's representative on earth. And so if, if, if somebody takes the life of another human being, you're, you're, you're taking the life of one of God's servants, one of his representatives. And that's one of the highest forms of treason in any government. Right? Sorry, if you, if you went to China, I'll just pick a random place, any country, but if you, and you took the life of a Chinese government official, don't really know why, but just use your imagination, maybe you lost a poker game, you lost your temper. That's the eighth commandment, but... <laughs> 
Right? You're not just taking the life of an individual. You're taking, in that case, you're taking the, the life of someone who represents the sovereign authority of another state. And so not only do you, are you guilty of taking the life of a fellow human being, but you would also be guilty of, and be viewed in the eyes of, the, of China, right? Like you have attacked the government because of whom that person represents. It's treason. And so if you attack a fellow human being made in the image of God, it's not just the horror of taking another life, it's, it's assaulting one of his ambassadors. It's an assault on God as well. Right? And so in Genesis 9-6, what God is saying in the aftermath of the flood is this amazing statement that every human being, despite their continued propensity for violence, uh, their, their continued ability to bear grudges, lash out, and to harm others, they are still made in God's image and they still demand and deserve protection. Right? So much so that the only way you can show how much their life is worth it's a life for a life. Because money's not going to cover the loss of life. Right. I really like this illustration that I've, that I've found. I didn't come up with it. That, that human beings, as God's image bearers, they're like the really old castles in Europe. Right? There, there's these magnificent structures, but they're in ruins. Right? They're run down. They're dilapidated far from its former beauty and glory. Right? And if you've ever visited any kind of magnificent ruins, right? You look at it and say, man, I wonder what that was like when it was in its heyday, when it was beautiful. You wonder what it would be like to be restored in its full glory and beauty. Well, that's why often these are protected sites, because we don't want them to get ruined anymore, right? So take that idea. When you, you and I look at any sinner, any human being who's tearing down the life of another, who's on a murderous rampage or just silently seething or holding onto a grudge, Right? They're, they're ruins. They're ruins of, they're still made in God's image, but they're run down, dilapidated, not far from the glory of what God intended. But it does make you wonder what would humans be like if they didn't murder? If they're willing to protect and preserve every nook and cranny of human life, right? That, that, that would be majestic. It'd be glorious. It'd be fantastic. <coughs> Because then you would reflect God's image. You'd be like our good God who gives life to the just and unjust. So, all that to say, who are you angry with right now? Who are, who are you most tempted to insult, to tear down, to hate? Right? If, if we take the scriptures seriously, it is no small thing to harm a fellow human being. Because it's an assault on the one whom that person represents. And so, it's a good argument then. If we're going to be about the sixth commandment, let's start with something as simple as courtesy. Right? How, how important is that in our current cultural moment? To, to just start by thinking about how do we systematically be gentle with one another, especially with those with whom we disagree. Right? Courtesy is not natural. If you... Uh, Hang, spend time with young children, they will make very clear that courtesy has to be taught. <laughs> right? I, this great story, one dad tells the story of his dinosaur-loving son. Um, and so his aunt comes to visit, 
And the seven-year-old's doing what seven-year-olds do. It's just he's in the savage land playing with dinosaurs, not even noticing his aunt. And so when it's time to say goodbye, his mom says, uh, son, what do, you, what do you say to your Aunt Judy? And without looking up or batting an eye, he says, you look like a brontosaurus. Because <laughs> apparently she looked like the largest dinosaur to the seven-year-old. Right? Not cur- courteous, right? This thing has to be taught. Right? And so you just start thinking about this for, for human beings just to live together. We have to learn to control our words, to be courteous. Because specifically, we need protected and others need protected from our own self-centeredness and from theirs. Right? One, one uh, college pastor puts it this way, that, that courtesy flows from the awareness of how thin our skin is and how easily our best intentions go awry and how raw our nerve endings can tend to be. Because everyone knows how an offhanded comment or just the wrong tone of voice can ruin your whole day. A soft answer turns away wrath, <laughs> says Proverbs. It's courtesy. Right? That's why the Catechism says, you know, the way to live this out is to harbor charitable thoughts, um, to, to choose, to think and then choose words that are going to pour water on a conflict rather than gasoline because we see this person is made in the image of God. Right? So defending life includes basic courtesy, peacekeeping, even refusing to insult our enemies, because those on the other side of the proverbial trenches are just as much made in the image of God as me. And we have an obligation from God to protect their life as well. So do you take every image bearer seriously? Right? So, we have to see the significance in order of every human life to keep this commandment. Second, right, Jesus is going to send us out as those who are defenders of life, defenders of humanity. Right? Right, if we have a womb-to-tomb life ethic, um, means this is way bigger than one individual Christian can handle, for one. But it, it says a lot about the way we just interact with one another. Right? So let's just run through a bunch. I know there's one main objection to this idea, that, that God and the Bible are pro-life, and it goes something like this. Right? How can you say God is pro-life when two chapters later in Deuteronomy 7, God is going to command Israel to take life right? when they invade Canaan and they... They're called to drive out these nations that God has destined for justice. Right? No matter who you are as a Christian, these are the passages that we don't like to read out loud because um, it's really uncomfortable. And you go, how does that line up with Jesus' command to love your enemy? Um, right? And so I'll read Deuteronomy 7. You can turn the page if you have your, your Bibles there. This is just one place. And it's helpful to know, right, that Deuteronomy is using the language of the flood. Right? It's, it's, it's picking up themes from, from Genesis. But it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering in, into to take possession of it, and he clears away many nations before you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. 
You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, give your daughters or sons to each other, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Right? So that, that language of God is saying, Israel, t- take their lives in warfare. Utter, utter destruction. And then you add the tainted legacy of the church to the objection, right? The, the, the very real way Christians in Jesus' name have been responsible for injustice in the world. You can think of all the big names, the Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades, uh, all the ugliness of colonialism when Christian nations, so to speak, justified their violence by calling their enemies Canaanites to justify murder and stealing, and that's some of the legacy of our own country. I've heard that uh, ugly argument. All right, and so it's helpful, a couple things. It's helpful, I'm doing this one, because when you read through the Bible, you go, I don't know how to answer these things. This is something that takes a while to wrestle with. Um, One, you can hear how God, this one, when God looks out at society, he says, I look for justice. That's what he says in Isaiah 5. I looked for justice, but all I saw was bloodshed. I looked for righteousness, right? Relationships with one another. And all I saw was weeping and wailing um, at the ways people have have harmed each other. God is a God of justice. That, That is a category that we have to wrestle with. The other thing is, if you look at Deuteronomy 7, look at the language. On the one hand, it says, devote them to complete destruction, but then it says, don't marry them. It's hard to marry someone who's been utterly destroyed, <laughs> right? It's, it's like, this is hyperbole in some ways. Doesn't, doesn't take away the reality that God's saying you need to go fight, um, but it does help us put it in, in context, that God is really anxious that Israel be unique and not learn the ways of death from their pagan neighbors. Because these people that they're going to drive out are well-known for being violent, for participating in child sacrifice. God's been patient for up to 400 years, it says in Genesis, with these people. And so Israel is an imperfect instrument of justice used in this one particular place never to be repeated again. That's the argument. Right? And at the same time, in Deuteronomy 9, God's saying, don't you ever think I'm choosing you because you're great. You're you're stubborn. And the the message of Deuteronomy is, is if you ever default and become like these other people, my justice will fall on you. (laughs) Right? That that if you start to, to act like your neighbors who are taking life instead of defending life, who are acting like Pharaoh who's killing babies, and oppressing and, 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 and harming, right? The argument is, Israel, you will be subject to my justice. That's how serious God is about life. He defends the weak. He defends the vulnerable. So much so that he's willing to act to put a stop to it. Right? And that's, that's actually the testimony of Joshua to Kings, that Israel had this great command, and they became like their murderous, death-dealing Canaanite neighbors, because they didn't keep this commandment. And Israel's then sent into exile, driven out of this land. Right. So that's, that's one way to start thinking through some of this, these issues. The other thing is, if you, unless you're an Israelite about to follow Joshua into the promised land, this command, command is not for you. 
right? It's a very specific historical command. And nowhere in the Bible do you find God saying, my followers shall pick up the sword to do with what you want. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. In fact, the way the Bible uses the language of conquering and, and, and killing, it's saying, put to death your sin. Put to death the things in you that, that cause murder, that, 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 that takes life. Right? Crucify your flesh with its passions and desires that lead to death. That's Galatians 5. That's, what we're, that's what's happened and what's happening in the Christian. We're treating our selfishness the way Israel treated the Canaanites. Right. So, let's expand on the commandment for a minute. Right? If God is pro-life to the point where he will defend the weak from injustice, there are some things about the sixth commandment I don't naturally think of. So, for example... Uh, I'm pulling from the larger catechism, which I printed for you in the bulletin. Right? But it says, what's forbidden and what's expected is control your emotions, especially your excessive emotions. Right? So you, you know how this works. If you've ever been angry, it starts with a minor irritation, and, and then you're, you, the, the temperature builds, and your nostrils flare, and your eyes glare, and all of a sudden, you've gone from zero to 150, and you're shooting flames out your mouth. Right? See, anger isn't sinful, but excessive anger is. Because Jesus got angry. God gets angry at injustice. Right? It's, it's right to be against something and to be angry at what harms your fellow human beings. But what you do with that emotion is subject to God's commandment. Right? Nobody wants to live with someone who has anger issues, to walk on eggshells, to walk through your living room as if it's, it's been, you've got landmines hidden and you don't know what you're going to step on next. Right? No, to be a Christian is to let Jesus go to work on your emotions. As you see, his forbearance and patience with you, right, it, it's going to change the way we relate to one another. So you're going to find Christians are supposed to get angry. But we understand that uh, we're also called to be peacemakers. You're going to find that Christians grieve and weep. But we don't, ex we don't drown in sorrow because we grieve as those with hope. Christians will get anxious. But as Psalm 112 says, we're not to be a people who are terrified and live in constant fear of bad news. Christians are called to have compassion. It's a good emotion. But we're also called to not let compassion dominate us to the point where we never, we're afraid to tell someone the truth. Right? So, Sixth Commandment is saying pr protect life, control your emotions. Um, temperance in the ways we eat and drink is another one. Right? It's really interesting. Right? If God gives you a body to protect and preserve, and we're embodied souls, then we should take care of our bodies, be good stewards of our bodies. Um, includes with our food and drink. Right? For the love of God, go enjoy good food. Drink good drink. Right? I, I love Robert Capon. He says, O oh Lord, refresh our sensibilities. Give us this day our daily taste. 
and deliver us from the fear of calories and the bondage of nutrition. <laughs> you have blessed us with the dew of heaven and the fatness of earth and lots of corn and wine. <laughs> um, you know, I heard another great story about a, a, a pastor in Scotland, and he was asked to give thanks for the whiskey that they were drinking after the service together. It's Psalm 104. God gives alcohol to gladden the heart of man. Right? And the one pastor with him said, I, don't want, I can't thank God for the whiskey. Because he thought alcohol was evil. He said, well, if you can't thank God for the whiskey, you're not drinking our whiskey. <laughs> right? And the big idea, of course, is that food and drink are good gifts to, to people so that we not only just survive, but we can flourish. God made food taste good. But everybody knows that our relationship with food and drink can also go awry. Um, Gluttony is an issue. Alcoholism is an issue, right? When was the last time you heard a sermon on the importance of diet and nutrition um, for, for the health of the body? We're all terrified to do that because it's such a shameful, shame-filled conversation, right? Now, the Sixth Commandment's calling us to not abuse the gift of food or a drink or medicine, Right? Don't, don't abuse your work, right? Don't work too much. Because if you work too much, you don't sleep enough. And if you don't sleep enough, you're abusing the body and you're not defending life. Honor your God-given limitations. Uh, if you live to play and you never work, that's the opposite problem, right? You're, you're like the person who's just too tired to lift the ice cream to your mouth, right? You're, you're, that's not how human life is designed. We're, we're called to not just play. We're also designed to work. And so this is a call for self-control. That's what the Sixth Commandment's pointing at. Right? Another one. We've got a couple more and we're running out of time here. Um, always arguing. Right? The commandment forbids always arguing. Proverbs will say, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? That's, that's fighting. Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has the redness of eyes? Right? good portrait of what fighting feels like. Red eyes, anger, and sorrow together. Right? See, so it's saying don't, don't always be looking for a fight. Because if you're called to defend and protect life wherever it is, if you've ever been on those long, knockdown, week-long arguments, you know it's not good for your emotions and it's not good for your body. Right? Everybody's remembering their first year of marriage. <laughs> called to disagree without being a constant curmudgeon. Lastly, right, we're called to defend the innocent and give aid to those in distress. And obviously this speaks to our abortion conversation in our, in our culture. Right? But if, if every human life matters and every human being is made in God's image and we're called to protect the weak, then we're, we're called by the sixth commandment to defend the unborn child. Right? And even non-Christians get this. Right? There's a comedian, Bill Burr, right? very crass, but he uses the illustration of a cake. Right? If I'm baking a cake and it's in my oven, it's not quite finished yet, but you go into my oven and you take the cake out and just dump it in the trash. Right? You're, I'm going to yell at you, hey, don't ruin my cake. And if, if you respond, well, it wasn't a cake yet, Right? Your argument is, it was going to be. 
This is someone who's pro-choice. See, the argument of the scriptures is that every life matters. God formed them in the womb, and so we're called to defend them. But that doesn't take away our obligation then to have compassion for the terrified single mother who is looking at a life that is now no longer what she envisioned. We should provide aid and comfort to those in distress. Defend the innocent. In other words, we're, we're called to not let politics divide what the Bible has joined together. Right? Love the child, defend life, care for and provide for the single mother, help her get on her feet. Right? And so even if, the, even if any life that is born right, doesn't come into the perfect ideal Christian circumstances, they're made in the image of God and Christians can celebrate this, this child. At the same time, right, there's clinics all over the country who are doing this. They're looking for ways, how do we come alongside these terrified mothers? It's both and. And so, this leads us to the gospel. We've talked about a lot. <laughs> um, right, if you're someone who's had an abortion in the past, um, plagued by regret and shame, like I'm hoping you're hearing that the way the Sixth Commandment works is you're not alone in your guilt and shame. Right? Nobody, can, nobody can stand up apart from Jesus himself and say, I have defended life at every opportunity I've had. I'm good at arguing. I'm good at abusing God's good gifts. I'm, I'm really good at being irritated at other people. Right? And the good news of the gospel is that God forgives those who've taken life. Look at Moses. He's, he's a murderer. He killed an Egyptian. Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is famous for martyring Christians, at least approving of it and participating. And he's the author of multiple books of the New Testament. I mean, the, whole, the, the, the message of the gospel is that all the guilt and shame we have in the ways we've ruined life as God determined and destined life to be, that has been thrown into the infinite depths of God's love through Christ's death on the cross. Right? So what that means is we mean it when we say Christ is the justifier or the defender, the protector of the inexcusable. Right? When he stands up and says and tells us um, there is no condemnation for those right now who are in Christ Jesus, that's Paul, as someone with murder in his past, that he can stand up and say, God is not holding this thing against me, and it never will be held against me. It has been thrown into the depths of sea, never to be raised up to speak against me again, because Jesus takes life so seriously. He was willing to lay down his life to take the punishment we deserve for all the ways we've taken life um, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might see the true value and significance of every human being in the way that Jesus loves. Right? In fact, I mean, if we really take the gospel seriously, every Christian is a murderer of the Son of God because our sin made his death necessary. And the good news is, Jesus treats us the way he treated his killers then. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
right? And so when Jesus rose from the dead, what he was doing, he was purchasing our justification, Jesus standing behind us, defending us with his perfect life. And he's purchased our place as well and then in the new heavens and new earth. And so to the extent you and I see Jesus, the judge of the earth, taking the justice we deserve and continue to protect and defend us after we've blown it, after we've gotten angry again, who is leading us through paths of righteousness to life eternal, right? to the extent you really understand the depths of his love, you're going to be fiercely compassionate and wanting to defend the life of others. Right? You're going to want, one, you're going to want others to know Jesus and the eternal life he gives, <laughs> Because you're going to want them to say, imagine what it's like to be guilt-free in life. And imagine what it's like to know that one day you will know what it's like to be kind. You will be kind in every single moment in, in the deepest sense of the word. Because when we see Jesus in the future, we'll be like him. All right. But it also send us out, right, if we, if we are called to respond to God's gift of the gospel uh, by, by commandment keeping, we're going to be a people who defend life. We're going to desire to see our neighbors thrive. I don't know what that looks like for us at Hope Church, but it gets involved with not being ashamed to get involved with single mothers, um, adopting the orphans, protecting the widows. You know, when you see injustice in the community, not, not being afraid to speak out. When you see in the workplace someone being mistreated just with words, right? Because words are violent. And they can be used violently, I should say. Right? We, we say they have a right to not be treated like that. They're made in God's image. Right? See, what the sixth commandment does is show us a God who's destined us for life eternal. And so we want to be sent out into the world now and say, Lord, show me how to how to live life to the fullest as you've commanded for the sake of my neighbor. And that's, that's just, we're just scratching the surface. <laughs> so may you know uh, the, the guilt-free, condemnation-free gift that Jesus gives, even as he sends you out into the world to love the life of your neighbor, to love your neighbors to life. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray for... Um, for us as a church, Lord, that, that this, these wouldn't just be empty words, but you would be forming us and shaping us with Jesus' words, that you would help us forgive those who've harmed us, uh, that we would be sent out here as peacemakers into the world, even willing to forgive our enemies and to love them and to care for them. So may your will be done here in our hearts this morning and as we confess we need Jesus' help to do this. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand.